This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, Michael Lowinger. Welcome to the top of the show. Thanks for having me, Brooke Gladstone. Do you know why we're here? I do, yes. I'm here to ask you a bunch of important questions, and uh, I want you to respond honestly. As I always do. Okay. Why are we here? We're here because it's that time of year when we have to ask our listeners... I'm sorry, my cat. One second. (laughs) We're here to, once again, ask our listeners to... Consider financially supporting on the media. Why? Because there are many people behind the scenes researching, coming up with ideas, editing things really, really fast, doing all the smart media analysis stuff. And that is hard work that costs money. Why should they care? Our listeners? Mm-hmm. Because I think we do a good job. I mean, think about the midterms, for instance. If the 2020 presidential election is any indication, our media ecosystem is going to be inundated in false information, disinformation. Journalism is time and resource intensive because anyone can just spout their opinion, do punditry, spread lies. But doing the kind of analysis that we do, doing the deep reporting that we do is really hard. Okay, now you ask me, and let's see how it goes. Okay. Hey, Brooke, welcome to uh, On the Media, your own show. Oh, thank you very much, Michael Lowinger. I love being on your show. (laughs) Brooke, do you know why we're here? Yes, I do. It is fundraising time, and people are going to be importuned by us to give us some money so that we can continue to do the job we do. And why are we asking for money? Because we rely on the public. It's the most consistent form of support, as everybody knows. And because it's also a uniquely cool way of funding journalism. We are not persuadable by any large single funding source. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of individual people that enable us to maintain our independence and to provide what is a unique service on the media is uh, a show like no other, wouldn't you say? I agree, but I'd like to know why you think our show is unique and why you think our show needs this membership support. Well, we're both reporters for the program, and we know how important it is to be the listener's surrogate. I've heard so many shows where there are lots of interviews and everything feels staged, like it's not happening for real in the moment. The People asking the questions are rarely surprised. We're surprised all the time. We take those nuggets of information that haven't been overly processed, and then we put it through the on the media (laughs) extruder and figure out what it is that we've learned, which is why what we offer on the program sounds different from almost any other place. 
why now, Brooke? Why November 2022? <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Look, this spot is going to be attached to two programs, one about voter suppression and one about libraries. Both issues have been under escalating pressure and inspire escalating concerns. These are vital issues, the national level and the local level coalesce when it comes to voting. And people find in their libraries, school boards, and city councils a place where they can really engage. America's changing so fast. And we try very hard to remind people about how the systems are changing and how democracy may change as well. Another thing we do is our take. We examine the stories that we tell ourselves, whether it comes through the media or through our culture, our politics, our religion, and then we examine those stories and see if they always hold water. Let me ask you a question. Sure. How much do you think listeners should give to support this show? I, I, I hope whoever's listening thinks in their mind about how much they listen to this show and what it's meant to them over the past month, year, lifetime as a listener, and try to put a number to the time that you've spent with us. We're asking listeners to donate $8 a month, become a sustaining member, and rest assured knowing that you are supporting rigorous, original journalism at a time when it's needed most. After more than 20 years of doing this show, we are still growing, still thinking in new ways. And $8 a month, if you can afford it, would be really significant. So please consider going to onthemedia.org slash donate to help us out and to keep our show on the air. Yeah, onthemedia.org slash donate. And thanks very much. Thanks. Enjoy the show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, and on this week's Midweek Podcast, we bring you a contemplative retreat from the midterm news with a story that first ran last year. On the media producer Molly Schwartz tells us the tale of how power has become entrenched quietly through standards in a quiet place. The library. So I've been there 12 years. Jessica Corsi Hines is a writer and the director of the Bard High School Early College Queens Library. I founded it. I started it from the ground up. As the solo librarian, she has to do everything herself, including catalog all the books using the Dewey Decimal System. We librarians who work with Dewey are well-versed in these numbers. For all the non-librarians out there, a quick primer on the Dewey Decimal System. Have you ever watched the way others use the library? There's quite a difference in the way they go about it. It's organized into 10 main classes of knowledge, with each class represented by numbers. Philosophy and psychology are the 100s, the 200s are religion, social sciences are in the 300s, the 400s are language, and the 500s are science. Catalogers can add more numbers to make a Dewey's number more specific to the book it's describing. Each figure in the number is significant. 510 tells us the books deal with mathematics. 520 tells us the books deal with astronomy. 530 is physics. And rounding out the 10 main classes are technology, arts and recreation, literature, history, and computer science and other information. It's a hierarchical structure in which all of these classes have nearly endless permutations. You'll be looking for many books in the 800s. Do you know what they are? Literature? That's right. 
8.10s are American literature. 8.20s are English literature. 8.30s are German. One day in 2010, the Bard High School Early College Library received a large order of books about the civil rights movement, which Jester Corsi Hines was excited about because our history section was feeling very white. But when this big order of civil rights books came in, she noticed they weren't classified under history in the 900s, but under the 300s. The 300s are a grab bag of books. They include everything from anthropology and sociology, labor studies, political science, and folklore, but also some books that could possibly be classified in the 900s, the history section. Books on Obama were in 300s. They were separated from books on other presidents. And that was very disturbing to me. And I just didn't understand why our current president was not going to be part of history. And Obama wasn't the only one stuffed in the 300s. And then when it came to the LGBTQ books and the women's history books and books on immigrant history, all of those were in the 300s as well. And I realized that women, immigrants, and people of color were all being pigeonholed in this very strange 300 section. So we just started moving them. She and her student interns decided to put President Obama where they thought he belonged, in the 900s, next to the other presidents. And that was the beginning of changing Dewey, of rebelling against Dewey. DeCourcy Hines wrote about her frustrations with Dewey in a New York Times essay called, Oh Dewey, Where Would You Put Me? There have been critiques of Melville Dewey and his system dating back to the early 1900s, and recently some libraries have been ditching Dewey in favor of bookstore-style organization. Public libraries are rolling out a new system where books are now organized by categories such as animals or computers. People don't come in and go, I feel like an 811 today. No, they think I want poetry. The Greenwood Public Library is ditching Dewey for a shelf system they call subject savvy. For most of the Dewey Decimal System's 145 years in use, Melville Dewey has been celebrated as a kind of founding father of American librarianship. We're always searching for heroes, and Dewey was an early library pioneer whose influence was very wide. Wayne Wiegand is a library historian and the author of Irrepressible Reformer, a biography of Melville Dewey. He describes how Melville Dewey created the Dewey Decimal System in the early 1870s when he was a student at Amherst College. The Amherst College campus between 1870 and 1874 was a very white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, male-dominated world. Dewey pretty much programmed into his system the priorities, of course, which brought also the biases and the prejudices of that world into his classification scheme. You can tell this very easily in the 200s and the religions, which heavily privileges Protestantism against all other kinds of religion. In fact, nine-tenths of the 200s are dedicated to Christianity. Like David Starr Jordan, who Lulu Miller wrote about in her book, Melville Dewey was a late 19th century eccentric who loved to classify things. In fact, the lives of Melville Dewey and David Starr Jordan have some other eerie parallels. They were both born into strict Protestant households in upstate New York in 1851, and they both died in 1931. And Dewey also had views that made him, if not an outright eugenicist, at least eugenics adjacent. He was certainly sympathetic with the ideas that the eugenicists put forth. 
he did not see black people as equal to white people. He did not see Jewish people as equal to white people. Books by black authors were classified in Dewey under slavery or colonization. Even a book of poems by James Weldon Johnson, a famous black writer. When LGBTQ topics get Dewey numbers in the 1930s, they're categorized as abnormal psychology, perversion, derangement, and medical disorders. That system will reflect the ideology of the people who designed it. Emily Drabinsky is the interim chief librarian of the Mina Reese Library at CUNY. You can add new language and revise old language, but essentially you are always putting a new item into a pre-existing system. The Dewey Decimal System is like the original YouTube algorithm. Its power comes from the fact that it groups books next to other books on related subjects, so that when you're browsing the shelves, you're basically recommended other books you might like. Dewey wasn't the first person to think of this idea, but he was a brilliant businessman who found himself in the right place at the right time. Andrew Carnegie was donating millions of dollars to put up thousands of public libraries across the country, and it was in a rare community that did not have a public library by 1920. And Dewey was poised to supply them with an organizational system and an army of librarians to implement it. And his scheme was there, and it was being promoted by his students and the library press and the library organizations. For Dewey, his classification was always meant to organize all the knowledge in the world. But of course, times change. New technology gets invented, cultural norms evolve, geopolitics shift, so the Dewey Decimal System is regularly revised. For a long time, those revisions happened within a kind of black box. But according to Caroline Sacucci, who works at the Library of Congress, where she spent nine years as the Dewey program manager, it's become more democratic over time. A lot of work has been done to really promote this community engagement aspect for the Dewey classification, which I think can only make it better and make it stronger and have community members take ownership of it as well. Since 2019, proposed Dewey revisions are posted online and open to public comment. Librarians can even contribute Dewey numbers back into the system. And, of course, an especially frustrated librarian can always just go rogue. There's no library police that are going to come out and <laughs> tell the library they've done it wrong. Libraries are always free to arrange materials according to the way they want them and that will best serve their users. But that's easier said than done. Anytime there's a major change to a classification system, it could wreak havoc with the collection because that means that all the bibliographic records have to be changed, but then all the physical items have to be relabeled and then reshelved. And then signage has to change. And I mean, there's just a whole lot that has to happen in order to reclassify large swaths of material. Aside from Dewey, there are other library classification systems, including the Library of Congress classification system. It's one of the other largest systems in the world, and it's the brainchild of another white man that's beset with some of the same problems as Dewey. The Library of Congress classification system comes from Thomas Jefferson's collection of materials. The Library of Congress, the initial collection for Congress, burns down. Jefferson makes a donation to the state of his personal collection, and the classification reflects his original order for his own materials. Instead of using numbers to classify books, the Library of Congress system uses subject headings. And in 2014, a student at Dartmouth College named Melissa Padilla was doing a research project on undocumented youth organizing. She went to meet with Jill Barron, a Dartmouth librarian, to find resources. And they noticed a subject heading that Melissa found disturbing. There were pages and pages of variations on the term illegal aliens. 
this was the term that had been used to categorize this particular book. That's Jill Barron in the documentary Change the Subject. A group of Dartmouth students protested the use of the term illegal alien, but they discovered that the problem wasn't with Dartmouth. We didn't realize that it was like a national database um, that applied to like every institution. It was in some ways our naive <laughs> understanding of, of systems. So the students filed a petition with the Library of Congress to change the subject heading. And the revision was accepted. But this was 2016, a year when the question of immigration was at the center of a contentious presidential race. Republican members of Congress got wind of the proposed change and decided to block it. Cruz, one of four Republican lawmakers, to sign a letter urging the Library of Congress not to eliminate the term illegal aliens from search terms and cataloging. Here's Diane Black, a then-congressional representative from Tennessee. Well, can you believe that the Library of Congress would make a decision with a bunch of liberal students from Dartmouth University who sent a petition to them to say that this was a dehumanizing or an inflammatory term. And to make that decision on political correctness to change something that has been in the lexicon there at our Library of Congress since back in the early 1900s is just unbelievable to me. The change was successfully blocked, and to this day, illegal alien is still an official term in the Library of Congress subject headings. But the incident breathed new life into a movement among librarians who want to reform cataloging, even when that requires working through slow-moving bureaucracies. It's an intellectual infrastructure. Emily Drabinsky. Most people don't even know it exists, much less get exercised about it. It's an incredibly difficult ship to maneuver. In 2013, Drabinsky published an article called Queering the Catalog, Queer Theory in the Politics of Correction. She considers herself part of a group of so-called critical catalogers. But libraries, with their committees and careful processes, are a poor match for the speed at which cultures change and evolve. You have a system that cannot keep up with the rapidly changing language that LGBTQ plus people use to describe themselves, so that you'll have remnants of old language, and that will be the only language that's there, so gay men, lesbian. But there are many, many other words for people in the contemporary moment, and none of them are in the system. The language is never right, it's never correct because it's always delayed, if language could even be correct in the first place, which I think it probably can. She points out that in the Library of Congress classification system, the one her library uses, the problem isn't only how things are named, but that some things aren't named at all. Another example of how bias is in the system is if I want to look up African-American women's history, I do a search and it comes up. What if I wanted to do research into the history of white women? White is an unmarked category. It doesn't even appear. It's impossible to retrieve. So the normal is not named at all. For decades, proponents of critical cataloging have been showing the ways that library classification reflects systems of power that are at play outside the library walls and also reinforces them. Some librarians critical of classification systems want to burn them all down and start over. But they're not in the majority. I always wonder when people say burn it down if they've ever built anything. It can be very, very difficult to build things. The interoperability piece is super important. And if we want libraries to be able to share, we need those systems to continue functioning. Part of the reason classification is so problematic is because it's inherently reductive. Numbers and language are always flattening the thing they're trying to describe. 
shrinking big ideas into small codes that can fit on the spine of a book. Talking to library catalogers, I realized this isn't an exact science. It's a craft. One that's at bottom about making sure we have access to the ideas of others. The most magical thing that libraries do is share. I use OCLC and my records are there. And then I have colleagues on the other side of the planet who are using those same systems as well. And it means that we can go back and forth borrowing and lending between each other. So that interoperability is really important. In a world without order, our classification systems will always be imperfect approximations. But the shelves of a library will always be a place that try to give our humanity some structure, some sense, or at least help you find the book you're looking for, which will have a call number on it between 0 and 999. For On the Media, I'm Molly Schwartz. That was On the Media producer Molly Schwartz. Thanks for joining us for the Midweek Pod, and be sure to tune into The Big Show on Friday for a whole hour about America's newest battlefield, the library. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.